Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 508. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series, we are joined today by scientist and wilderness guide and wildlife photographer Russell Gammon. Russell Gammon has been helping to fulfill such dreams like planning and leading private and small group safaris to some of Africa's most iconic destinations for 30 years. Russell Gammon will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Program via Zoom January 23rd, and the subject of his presentation is Russell Gammon's Africa. Take a virtual walk on the wild side. Please check our website for more details. Who hasn't dreamed of glancing across a dry African savanna or standing beneath a jungle canopy, hoping to get a fleeting glimpse of a wild creature we've seen only in a zoo? Today, we'll discuss with Russell Gammon just those dreams and the virtual safari that he'll take us on through four of his favorite places on the African continent. We'll stop first at Serengeti National Park to follow the greatest large mammal migration as a mega herd of wildebeest and zebra chase the rains across endless grasslands. We will experience the unforgettable sight of the largest population of African elephants on earth in Botswana's Okavanga Delta. We'll be dazzled by the wild and unique inhabitants on the island of Madagascar known as Africa's Galapagos. And we'll visit Russell Gammon's favorite, the little known Mana Pools in Zimbabwe. Nestled in the heart of the Lower Zambezi Valley, it is one of Africa's last true wilderness areas where the Zambezi River meanders through a paradise that is home to large wildlife populations, including elephants, hippos, and crocodiles. This is going to be an unforgettable journey that you're just going to love. So just imagine the dreams that you'll have in experiencing this today with Russell Gammon. Russell Gammon's family first arrived in Africa in the early 1820s. He's a popular wilderness guide on the National Geographic Channel with more than 30 years of experience leading expeditions and safaris throughout Southern and East Africa. Russell Gammon is also a gifted storyteller and an authority on the life of explorer David Livingstone. Russell Gammon has participated in an expedition with the British explorer Sir Ranulph Fiennes that retraced the final portion of Livingstone's journey to the Victoria Falls and was featured in the National Geographic PBS documentary The Last Diary of Dr. Livingstone. For the past five years, Russell Gammon has been a Smithsonian associate lecturing annually at the headquarters of Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. on a wide range of conservation-related topics. When not on safari, Russell Gammon lives in the small coastal town of Naisna on the southern tip of Africa, where we are joining him today. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Smithsonian associate, Russell Gammon. Russell Gammon, welcome to the program. Paul, my great pleasure to be with you. It is a pleasure to talk to you, too. Let me ask you, in the big, wide world, where are we catching up to you today? Where are you uh, during our conversation? I live in a little town called Neisna, which is right in the southern tip of South Africa. The southern coastline is called the Garden Route, and it runs between, on the sort of western extremity, Cape Town, the eastern extremity, a city called Port Elizabeth. And we are right in the middle of that, about halfway down the coastline. It's about two, three hours down the coastline. Very similar coastline to what you guys have in Northern California. Mm, okay. 
Well, that's good to know. I, I do know that that area pretty well. A continent away, but uh, but you but you sound great. I, I hope you and your family are doing doing well during this uh, time of of quarantining. And we are we are extremely social distanced at the moment, you and I. But uh, that's probably a good thing. But my my uh, thoughts are with you and your family. I hope everybody's doing well. Were you, you guys all uh, handling this pretty good? Keeping keeping a, a good uh, kind of attitude throughout. Yeah, you know what? I'm originally from Zimbabwe. My whole family is. So somebody said to me the other day, you know, Zimbabweans are not eternal optimists. You guys are more like terminal optimists. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, again, welcome, Russ and Kim, and we're, we're excited to talk to you. I wonder if you'd tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, because this is an exciting one. And maybe, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you will be talking about during this episode, because you've been here before. Yeah, that's right. I, I usually do them in person, and this one will be mm. via Zoom. So that's going to be a new experience for me. We'll see how that one works out. But <laughs> what they've asked me to do is to do a series of four lectures. Um, each of them will be about 40 minutes. Essentially, the idea behind this was if we cannot travel, which we can't at the moment, um, then Maybe I can take people on a journey. I've been going on safari to these places for 30 years, taking photographs, collecting experiences. And I just thought it'd be a wonderful opportunity to kind of share with people a window on my life and where I've been and the places that I traveled to. And in particular, why these four are so special to me. So we're going to start with the, the Serengeti obviously home to the largest large mammal migration on the planet. So if you haven't seen that, then it's definitely something to put at the very top of your bucket list because the sight of, you know, kind of one and a half million wildebeest and a quarter of a million zebra chasing the reins across this endless grassland is just a very, very compelling spectacle. You know, the migration encompasses an area of 12,000 square miles. So it's, it's, it's an area the size of Connecticut. And it's a constantly unfolding drama that just moves from one act to the next to the next. About, about 25% of that herd will actually perish in the course of any one year's migration. Hmm. But then in the South Serengeti, where they gather in February, they'll give birth in the period of about two or three weeks to somewhere in the region of about 750,000 calves, zebra, wildebeest, all sorts. They all breed at the same time of the year. And uh, that basically replaces those animals that have been weeded out during the course of the migration. So it's a really, really dramatic spectacle and uh, just a, a remarkable thing to witness. And then we're going to do one on the Okavango, which is um, the Okavango Delta in the middle of Botswana. This is one of the largest Ramsar wetland sites. It's about 14,000 square kilometers of wetland. And it's at the center of a larger reserve, which is today home to half of the African elephants left on Earth. Hmm. A very, very special place, a very unique environment. Um, I'm also going to be talking about Madagascar, which is a, another favorite of mine, a rather remarkable place. It's been called the Galapagos of Africa because mm. 
the island was isolated and then a couple of species managed to make it to the island after it was isolated and then you've got this adaptive radiation in um, in in biological terms where these lemurs have evolved to fit almost every single niche so there's now from the original party of lemurs that came ashore somewhere in the region of 60 million years ago they've adapted into this incredible diversity is now over 110 species and that's not including the 27 giant lemurs that went extinct when we arrived because that seems to be the way of things we always arrive and and mess things up and then mm-hmm. on to my last presentation is going to be on a national park that's very close to my heart it's called Mana Pools it's in northern Zimbabwe um, not a very well known destination but it's got a special place in my heart because that's where I started guiding 30 years ago as a young man paddling a canoe down the river. And um, it's one of those unique places in Africa. I measure the quality of, of what I call wilderness, which is kind of a ethereal concept, but it's very easy to sort of empirically measure. You just take out your cell phone when you get there and if you have a signal, it doesn't qualify as the wilderness. But this is one of those few places left on Earth where you can actually get to where there's just the park is so vast and they've kept it so pristine that they're just there are no cell phone towers. And I know that seems a fairly mundane thing, but it's uh, it's increasingly rare these days. Of course, the Zambezi River flows through the middle of this place. And it was made a World Heritage Site um, a couple of years ago just purely on the strength of its scenic beauty because it has these beautiful woodlands that you get this filtered afternoon light coming through. So we'll be showing some people some some pretty spectacular images that we've captured in that in that environment. But, yeah, they're just, they're just four places that are very close to my heart, um, special places unique places and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing them with people. We are certainly looking forward to it and I, I can hear this in your voice, this uh, this love and, and your favorites, uh, the Akavango, the, the Mana Pools in Zimbabwe. I wonder, after 30 years, are you still just as excited as you as you were when you first paddled that canoe? Is this just still just <laughs> as exhilarating as it sounds? Because it does sound like a wonderful career. Yeah, it's. Uh, I always say to people, it beats working for a living. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll be honest with you. I explain it to people like this. I say the feeling of going on safari is if you haven't experienced it, it's hard to kind of relate to people. It's the magic of not knowing what you're going to see around the next corner. Um, I'm as in love with it as I was 30 years ago when I started and the day that it's not like that for me, I'll stop doing it. But I don't think that that day will ever come. It's just, uh, it's been a privilege is what it is. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Thank you. Well, from my research, I've learned that your family history, it, it dates back to the 1820s in Africa. It's just incredible stuff. And, and your memories must be just wonderful of this time spent there and your family memories there. I wondered if you'd share with us just what of your most unforgettable experiences with African wildlife over that period of time. It's quite a funny story. Um, mm. 
in northern Zimbabwe, there's a large um, dam that was built on the Zambezi River, and it dammed up an area called called Lake Kariba. And on the, uh, I guess, southwestern area of the lake is this national park called Matusadona, and I was working there on the eastern boundary of the park. There was a river there called the Umi River, and the Umi River was a crocodile breeding sanctuary. So where we were situated, where our safari camp was situated, was on this river, and um, where the lake had sort of pushed back and flooded into this river. So I was going about my normal business and I got a frantic phone call from a friend of mine who ran another safari camp down the way to say, you know, we knew that they had been having problems with a lioness that had been predating on people's goats. She had found her way into this village and discovered a whole bunch of goats and rather developed a a taste for them. So I get this frantic call from my buddy at kind of seven o'clock in the evening to say his boat has broken down. They've got this lioness. She's drugged and she's in the back of the pickup truck. Can I bring my boat around and pick her up? And the idea was to take her across the estuary and drop her off in the national park so that she would be separated from the goats by, you know, this, this estuary. So... We raced down and jumped into the boat and went roaring off. Of course, there was a storm brewing. And um, so we arrived there on the on the lake shore. And they unload this lioness. Now, she, was, she, would, she had been knocked out using a drug called ketamine, which one of the things it does with the cats is it leaves them, it, it, it almost paralyzes them, but it leaves them awake. So they've got their eyes open. So there's this lioness that unloading on a stretcher, and she was the biggest lioness I've ever seen in my life. I mean, she was huge. And we loaded her onto the boat. And then I noticed that the staff who were helping us load, they all had these grazers all over them. So I said to the vet, you know, what's up with, with all of these guys? How did they get hurt? <laughs> and he confided in me that this lioness had woken up as they were driving down the road. So everybody had jumped off the pickup truck at sort of <laughs> 30 mile an hour <laughs> to avoid the lioness. And he said, no, but don't worry. I've given her, a, you know, I've given her another really good shot. She's not going to wake up again anyway. So we load this lioness into the boat. And then we tell the staff, no, they've got to get into the boat because they've got to come with us to unload her on the other side. And there's a whole bunch of muttering because they don't think this is a very good idea. Anyway, we load them up and we set off into the estuary. Now, by this time, it's dark, so we're working with a spotlight. And with each sweep of the spotlight, all you can see for miles is the glowing eyes of the crocodiles. Hmm. And as we're waking, you know, working our way through the storm and the waves are breaking over this cat, I'm thinking, you know, if she wakes up, what are we going to do? <laughs> So survival kicks in, right? And I figured that the best thing to do is to get – you don't want to get off the boat because of the crocodiles. You want to get as far (laughs) off the boat as you can while still being on the boat, right? (laughs) And uh, so that was my plan. I was going to cut the motor because we had an outboard motor, and I was going to go and stand on the outboard motor and hang off the back of the the boat. I don't know what everybody else's plan was. So we get this lioness across and, and, and unload her. And the national parks have provided a Land Rover to transport her deeper into the park. 
unfortunately, the Land Rover has a hard, um, I don't know what you guys call it in America, like a, it has like a hard canopy on it, you know, mm. so it's mm-hmm. like a, you know, it's almost like a station wagon. Mm. And we can't slide the stretcher in with this line S. She's just too heavy. So someone's going to have to climb into the back of this truck pick up the back of the back end of the stretcher so that we can slide it all the way in. But then uh, there's only a clearance of about a foot. So you're going to have to kind of leopard crawl now over this sleeping lioness oh to gosh. get out of the truck. So nobody's volunteering for this. So eventually, yeah. so eventually yours truly ends up being the one volunteering for it. But I mean, you know, I'm 6'2 and weigh 250 pounds. I'm not the smallest guy there. So <laughs> after much wriggling... And uh, something that you probably don't know, but lions don't smell very nice. They really do not. Anyway, so I got out and we went and dropped the lioness off and I returned to camp and we dropped off all the staff and the vet was at a loose end. So I said to him, well, come back to the camp and you can, I'll give you a room and you can sleep the night there and we'll, you know, arrange you some transport to get you home tomorrow. And uh, before he was going to bed, it was like four o'clock in the morning. I said to him, look, I need a, I need to have a nightcap to settle my nerves. So we're having a whiskey together in the bar before we went to bed. And I said to him, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, if that lioness had sat up on the boat, things were going to get interesting. And he said, yeah, he said. So I said to him, just as a matter of interest, Doc, what was your plan? I uh, says, no, I'd, I'd figured it out. I was going to go and jump on the back on the outboard motor. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know That's if anybody else was going to be heading there, but <laughs> if that lioness had stood up, mine, there was going to be an almighty fight for that <laughs> spot on the outboard motor. All of like 10 square inches of it. <laughs> yeah, and the and the best part of the story is that within 48 hours, the lioness was back in the Ome eating goats again. Oh, no. Okay, <laughs> she well. She had literally woken up and walked straight around the, the estuary, and within 48 hours, she was back at her her original position. So it was all for naught. <laughs> That's a great story. We are with wonderful storyteller, wilderness guide, wildlife photographer, and Smithsonian associate Russell Gammon. Russell Gammon will be at the Smithsonian Associates presenting Russell Gammon's Africa, taking a virtual walk on the wild side. And it'll be a weekend program. We're going to put up links to where you can find out more information and details about the Smithsonian Associates upcoming program, as well as Russell Gammon and his wonderful work. Russell Gammon, I, I, I want to get back to this idea of, of your business, the, the business of, of safari. And I, I wonder if you'd tell us, because I see this term frequently, and I'm not sure I really fully understand it. Many in our audience might know it, but I wonder if you'd describe what ecotourism is and perhaps tell us a little bit about how it's changed your business. It's a concept that has come out of a growing awareness that, um, you know, travel to natural areas should contribute to the preservation of those areas rather than denigrating them. It it also speaks to the fact that it needs to sustain the well-being of the local people. Um, so it involves interpretation and education. You know, in my lifetime, the world's population has doubled. It's gone from 3.6 billion to now 7.6 billion. And in 
the last 30 years that I've been taking people on safari, I've seen the impact of that. Um, and so it's something that I'm acutely aware of and something that I'm very passionate about. Um, reach a point where, you know, the outcome of taking people on safari needs to be more than just, you know, business. It needs to mm-hmm. be furthering the cause of conservation. And that's really what we at World Wildlife Journeys are focused on is putting together journeys that educate people, but that also benefit the local communities. Um, you know, the reality is that, uh, and it's and it's a great irony, that Africa is home to some of the poorest people in the world, have ended up being the custodians of an incredible wealth of biodiversity. Um, but from the point of view of Africa's leaders, they're constantly making this value judgment of a, it's a balancing act between how do you set aside all of this land for biodiversity, for wildlife, for conservation? How do you balance that against the fact that you've got your people who have elected you, who are looking to you to help them? looking for opportunities, and most of them are subsistence farmers. The easiest way to help them is to allocate more land, it would seem. And so this is really the kind of the the intersection, if you like, of where conservation in Africa is now, is at this kind of uneasy point where Africa's got a growing population And um, increasingly, there's pressure on these areas, you know, for governments to look at the land use policy and to maybe reconsider some of these protected areas. And and that would would be very sad to see. So I firmly believe uh, the growth of tourism in Africa, the, the potential is almost limitless. I mean, tourism prior to COVID was one of the world's fastest growing industries is growing at 5%. And Africa's total share of global tourism is only 2%. So there is extraordinary potential there for Africa to become more involved as a global player. I think we've got a, a fantastic product. Um, you know, I also run wildlife safaris in, in South America and Southeast Asia. Africa's reserves and safari camps are some of the most sophisticated you'll find anywhere in the world. I mean, we really do, the, the, the tour operators do an incredibly good job. And that has the potential to create, you know, enormous wealth and enormous uh, employment, you know. And that, to me, is, is, is where it's at for me is, you know, the more tourists we can get, the more people we can get, and if we do it right, if we do it well, um, it'll have benefits down the line. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a part of me that harks back to the good old days where I could canoe down the Zambezi River and go for two or three days without seeing any sign of human habitation. But the fact that there are more camps today is actually beneficial to the wildlife because the more human presence you have in an area like that where you've got conservation going on, and most of these camps do. They do conservation work. um, They work with the local communities. 
And it's all beneficial in the long run to protecting those areas and keeping the wildlife safe. Fascinating. And so, so helpful to, to hear this, Russell Gammon. We appreciate your time. I just really have one final question for you, and it's really just kind of a follow-up. I'd like to know, for our audience, how do we get involved with this? The, the challenges of conservation are real, are real. We do want to protect the wildlife, and uh, we think that the ecotourism business is one that we, we will support. However, what are some good causes, some, some perhaps recommend a couple for us that we can get involved with and uh, – help with activism and support at the same time. As I mentioned earlier, you know, habitat preservation lies at the heart of every discussion on conservation. Without any doubt, the singular challenge to us is summarized in the acronym PADDD, which stands for Protected Areas, Downgrade, Downsize, and Degazetting. And about half of the areas are being funded through tourism. So the other half actually are being funded through sport hunting, which I know is a hugely controversial thing. And there are people working hard to see that that is overturned and banned. But I would urge those people to just think very carefully about what they're doing, because unless we come up with an alternative source of funding for those areas before we get rid of the revenue stream coming in from sport hunting, We stand to lose those areas. It's happened recently in Tanzania um, after the U.S. ban on the import of trophy elephants under President Obama uh, and lion restrictions. Um, This was done through the Endangered Species Act. The following year, six million acres of hunting blocks were surrendered back to the government due to the fact that they were no longer viable. And the Tanzanian administration then degazetted 12 protected areas. We lost 700,000 hectares in protected areas. And so I would say, you know, in particular, because you use the word activism, it's something that you, that that people need to be very careful about because, mm-hmm. you know, Conservation on the African continent is not about animal rights. It's not about the individual rights of animals. It's about preserving the ecosystem in which those animals live. You know, we can preserve individual animals and individual species as much as we want, but if they don't have somewhere to live, then we're actually not doing ourselves any favors. Um, so I would just encourage them to look at organizations, you know, World Wildlife, um, the the World Wildlife Fund does some incredible work and they've got some fantastic, uh, um, some fantastic programs. There's another program that I absolutely love in Tanzania called Lion Guardians, where they're teaching the young Maasai Moran to herd the lions in effect, to keep them away from the cattle and uh, building organic bomas that keep the lions out so that they can't get at the cattle to kill them. I've got another friend, Rory Young, who works for an organization called Chengeta. They do incredible work up in Mali, uh, training the park's rangers. And um, so there's a, there's a lot of good causes out there and a lot of uh, people that need support. Um, but I would urge people to, to just be judicious about, uh, about legislation and, and anything to do with that sort of thing in the U.S. because it it has, you know, it has the ability to have massive, massive consequences. 
halfway around the world from where the legislation gets signed, but it has very, very real consequences. Uh, and truthfully, that's the thing that keeps me up at night more than anything else. Hmm. That's very helpful. And um, your authority on the subject is, is so valuable. So Russell Gavin, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. We're looking forward to your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. We're going to put some links up in the show notes where people can find out more information. But Russell Gammon, thank you. We look forward to uh, having you back at some point as you come back to um, the Smithsonian uh, from uh, Nisna. We'd, we'd love to talk to you again. Paul, it would be my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. My thanks to Russell Gammon, who will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Program via Zoom January 23rd. And the subject of his presentation is Russell Gammon's Africa. Take a virtual walk on the wild side. Please check our website for more details. Thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please, everyone, practice smart social distancing, be well, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. 